This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. I have a really great memory, especially when it comes to random and somewhat useless information, like dates and particular details. It would be really cool if I could recall really impressive information like all the elements on the periodic table or real intricate math equations. But I'm not Rain Man or Sheldon Cooper by any means. Of course, I can easily recall the important information, but my mind is also clogged up with a lot of useless information. For example, For some reason, I have retained many of the lyrics from a 1985 Care Bears sing-along tape. Not very useful. I can also tell you the landline numbers to many of my elementary school friends from like 30 years ago. Clearly, they don't have those numbers still. And if you really wanted to know what my high school locker combination was, I can let you know that too. I can also tell you exactly what the waiting room looked and felt like at my pediatric rheumatologist's office. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. A TV sat in the room playing familiar childhood cartoons while the soft hum of conversations of families filled the air. It was a bright, colorful, well-lit room that was full of toys. There was colorful blocks, bears, and dolls that filled the shelves, along with slinkies, musical telephones, and a large selection of books that would take you on fun adventures beyond the imagination. In one corner was a tiny play kitchen that was sure to catch your attention. Beside it, hanging in a row, was a line of magical mirrors. With each step, they were able to transform you into a different person. One would make you tall and lean. With a step forward, suddenly, you had a massive head and a wee tiny body. With another stride, your body was short and round, and your head was the size of an overinflated balloon. I don't know what it was about those mirrors, but they always drew me in. I always got a quiet thrill out of picking which mirror I was going to stand in front of first. I can still see my reflection smiling back at me clearly in my memory today. Each time, I also remember glancing around that room, looking at the other children and wondering what brought them there that specific day, and if, by chance, we all had something in common. I'm Becky Zarr, and this is The Blind Reality. Over the years, I began to realize that unlike those magical mirrors, we don't get to pick or decide. Growing up, I had always envisioned my future to play out in a gentle kind of way, similar to how my life had always been from my perspective. Despite growing up in a somewhat sheltered environment, I was well aware of life's bumpy roads and that each life lived was a journey unique to that person. I was mindful that as people, we can share our feelings and we can relate to one another's circumstances. Yet, it comes down to the individual 
and their unique personal way that they choose to process their life's challenges. We as people most definitely do not always get to pick or decide exactly how our lives are going to evolve, but rather I've learned that it's more like a puzzle without its box. No final image to precisely guide us throughout our journey, but rather random pieces that are revealed to us in what feels like, at times, a sporadic sequence. I do not live a privileged life, and I never have. Growing up, I could easily look around and see others who had more than me. However, I do know that I am very lucky. I'm lucky to have had and have too many things to even begin to list. But as a grown adult, I suddenly had no idea who I was. But what I did know is that I had a long undefined journey to try to get to know myself again. I had to know clearly who I was before others were able to easily embrace me. While trying to figure out my future, I spent a lot of time looking back, reminiscing and evaluating how I used to be and how life used to be. It wasn't always the smoothest road, but it always felt secure and comfortable. I'm not sure if it's because of timing and simple childhood resilience, or because of my family's impeccable level of acceptance and their unwillingness to stop advocating for me or if it was something naturally embedded within myself. Regardless what it was, vision challenges have always been part of me and what I have learned to deem as normal. For as long as I can remember, I've always been going to doctors, taking eye drops and various medications. Everything started when I was around three years old. I was the typical kid. My older brother and I constantly drove my parents crazy. One night, my older brother and I were playing a game of tag in the house. We were running around the kitchen table and I tripped and fell. Everything seemed normal because I popped back up and the game continued. It wasn't until the next morning that we noticed that something actually had taken place. My right knee was significantly swollen and it was to the point that I was having trouble walking. My parents had then spent the next several days trying to figure out what exactly was going on. They took me to various doctors for their assessment and opinion, and it was by luck that we ended up in Saskatoon at the Royal University Hospital in the Pediatric Rheumatology Department. It was at that moment that my life took a positive change. Dr. Rosenberg diagnosed me on the spot, what was called at that time, posiarticular juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which today is known as a form of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. During this meeting, my parents had mentioned to Dr. Rosenberg that I seemed to be experiencing some sort of vision loss as well, and that they had had me at several different eye doctors and that none of them were able to diagnose me with anything. Dr. Rosenberg then decided to walk my parents and I down the hall and introduce us to one of his amazing colleagues. He introduced us to Dr. Ken Romanchuk in the Pediatric Ophthalmology Department. 
It was a pretty big day that day. Dr. Romanchuk examined my eyes and also diagnosed me with arthritis in my eyes, coupled with uveitis and glaucoma. He continued to tell my parents some really unfortunate news. The disease had taken the sight entirely in my right eye by this point, and it was aggressively spreading into my left eye. Being a parent myself now, I can't imagine how overwhelming that day was for my parents. The story always goes, though, that my parents were extremely appreciative to their newfound knowledge and their care team. They were happy that they were finally able to understand my diagnosis, and they had a team that was brilliant and was going to help them navigate this entire complex medical diagnosis of mine. When I was first diagnosed, I was a pretty quiet, wide-eyed, timid, three-year-old little girl. As I grew up, I realized that I was different from the other kids because of my diagnosis and all of my medical challenges. But what I didn't realize was, was how vast of an impact it was going to have on my entire life. Most children's heroes are superheroes, rock stars, or, in my son's case, NHL hockey players. But growing up, my heroes and the people that I most wanted to be like were the doctors and nurses who were providing care to me. I'll let you in on a little secret. When I was a kid, I was in complete awe of Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Romanchuk. The knowledge that they had, coupled with the kindness that they displayed to me, was amazing and I wanted to be just like them when I grew up. My parents were always super supportive of me. They always ensured that I was part of the conversation. To me, these open conversations were very beneficial. It allowed me to have a clear understanding as to what my challenges were, and it gave me the confidence that I needed to be able to communicate these issues clearly to my peers. Now, I would be very dishonest if I said that I never had challenges with peers teasing me about my condition. However, like other kids, I was able to quickly identify who my true friends were. And to my friends, regardless of where my arthritis existed, it really wasn't a big issue to them. Because my parents were able to normalize it to me, I was quite effective in normalizing it to my friends as well. In both elementary school as well as high school, I did have groups of really amazing friends. They often displayed empathy way beyond their years. In grade 7, I had a pretty major glaucoma surgery called a Maltino implant. It was performed on my one eye with remaining eyesight. During my recovery process, the direction at that time was to keep my eye protected by keeping it closed and covered. I remember a very close friend of mine then, her name was Darcy. She came over to visit and, of all things, watch a movie together. I remember laying there, listening to the movie and what was going on. Every once in a while, I would remove my bandage and sneak a peek at the TV. But in between, I also remember Darcy describing to me what was taking place on the screen. She was doing what we now know as described TV. 
She was 12 years old, and she had the care and insight that she did not want me to miss out. I'm sure that Darcy has long forgotten about this moment, but I most definitely haven't. Growing up, there have been a lot of moments that could be perceived as unremarkable that I have chose to hold on to and keep close to my heart. I've always been a little bit squishy and sentimental like that, although I don't always choose to show it. When I first found out about the surgery that I was just referring to, I remember being quite upset. I had had many surgeries by that point. And by the time I had reached age 12, I was getting pretty good at understanding my particular eye condition. And in turn, I also had a really good idea as to what potentially could go wrong. As a result of that, I also knew that the blind card was on the table. My brother Travis had always been there, watching from the sidelines. We had the typical brother-sister relationship growing up, where we drove our parents completely crazy, and we often wanted to claw each other's eyes out. I get that that may not be the best choice of words, but honestly, it's the most accurate. We also, however, love to joke around and tease each other, and we're extremely close. The day that I found out that I had to have that surgery was a day that my brother chose to stay home and hang out with me instead of going out with his high school friends. I remember the two of us just sitting in my room listening to a song over and over again. While both of us were trying to learn the lyrics, we didn't talk about the surgery or our feelings or anything like that, but rather my brother just allowed me to escape and feel like a kid. Over the years, I did miss a lot of school. My absence was usually related to me attending a doctor's appointment, having some sort of therapy or treatment done, and at times, it was because I was heading for surgery. Grade 4, I remember, being particularly challenging for me. There was a lot going on with my eyes at the time, and I had two surgeries within that school year. I had a teacher's aide that sat with me at school. She took notes from me and helped me complete my assignments. Also, I recall my mom coming to school at recess to give me eye drops, which really wasn't the coolest. But it all worked out. My eye rebounded and corrected with glasses I could see 2035. I believe that my arthritis has impacted my life in many ways, but that being said, it has not always been negative. It has taught me to stand up and advocate for what I believe in. It has taught me to push and explore options that others believe are not possible for me. I've learned over the years that my least favorite statements and words are things like, no, Sorry, Becky, I don't believe that that's the best idea for you. Oh, perhaps you should try something a little easier. And my personal favorite is, no, I'm sorry, that's not possible for you, Becky. When I hear words and statements like these, 
I want to prove that person wrong more than anything. Because of this, some people describe me as a stubborn individual. I, however, prefer to use the word persistent. I believe the same persistence has got me through many challenges within my life. I remember coming home in grade six and telling my parents, great news, I'm on the cheerleading team. And the really excellent thing is, I'm one of the smallest ones. So I get to be thrown in the air and on top of all of the stunts. I also remember telling my parents after grade 12 that I was going to cycle around Europe for 10 days. No need to worry though, because there's going to be parent and teacher chaperones. My parents were clearly worried that my joints would not be able to withstand this 10-day trip, knowing very well that I am not an athletic person in the least. I told them not to worry about that. I had a plan in place. I was going to borrow a stationary bike from my friend and train. And I totally did, for about 30 minutes one day. Then I said I was ready to go. By the way, I totally made that trip. I believe that my persistent attitude proved to be most beneficial when I decided to become a registered nurse. I graduated from the nursing program in 2004, ahead of schedule with no accommodations. Over the years, I've often been asked why I became a registered nurse. To me, the answer is very simple. I wanted to be able to give back for all of the amazing care that I received over the years. I wanted to be able to have a positive impact on even one person like I was impacted. And truthfully, I wanted an opportunity to stand on the other side of the table, to sit in the other chair and view things through a different lens. That, all being said, it's probably a really good thing that the frontal lobe of the human brain is not fully developed until the age of 25. As a kid, if I would have had the actual insight and full knowledge into some of the risks that I was taking, I probably wouldn't have lived quite as colorful of a life. I have no regrets. I had tons of fun growing up. When I was 24, I married the man of my dreams. When we were 30, we welcomed our beautiful boy Bennett into this crazy world. And this continued right up until the day that I experienced my global rupture at the age of 33. To this point in my life, I had no major regrets. In time, I knew that I wanted to be able to look back in another 30 years and feel the same. I wanted to know that I did my best. I knew that I wanted to once again fill my life with hope and joy. I promised myself at that moment that no matter what the challenge was, I would put the hard work into it to allow for the best results. When needed, I'll take that wobbly step forward. And if somebody I love and trust believes that there's more that can be done for my eye, I'll close my eyes and jump. I've learned from a young age that it's better to know than not. So why not live to know? Because of everything that I've been through, I do believe that we can learn from our pasts. However, I also believe that we need to step forward into each new day with persistence intrigue, and optimism. 
We may not always be in control of choosing our outcomes, but what we can choose is our attitudes. Evidently, eventually, I concluded that no matter how long I looked, the answers to my future were not going to be spelled out in my past. But rather, just like those magical childhood mirrors, I was going to have to keep taking steps forward in order to see what comes next. So today, I've decided to invite my brother Travis to come and have a chat with us. Growing up, the two of us were able to get into quite a bit of trouble together. We are both very sarcastic and love to joke around. For those of you who know both of us, you very well know that I'm about to lose control of this conversation, and potentially, it can go in any direction. When the two of us get together, it's really hard to say what's going to come out of our mouths. So Travis, welcome to my podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, my first question is, what was it like for you to grow up with a sibling with vision challenges? Oh, that's a good question. I, I didn't really know anything different. So growing up as a, a child, being your older brother, it was kind of all we knew. We were living in Corrobert early on in our life and lots of car rides back and forth from Corrobert to Saskatoon for doctor's appointments. We got to probably stay in hotels more often than other kids our ages. So we, we that was our life. What advice would you give to somebody who's growing up with a sibling with health challenges? Well, for me, it was tough because I didn't really know anything different, right? That was, I was your brother. So you were Becky, I was your older brother, and I didn't look at you as being health challenged. So it was a, a big thing for me to protect you whenever we went out. And through all this, I think that's where the sarcasm comes from, right? We we learned sarcasm to deal with, you know, things that weren't maybe going so well in, in our lives, more your life than mine. But you know, what was going on in your life was going on in my life. I, I think the biggest thing that I learned in that is, you know, just be patient, have some humor in it, look at you no differently than me or mom or dad. And it, it was no different than having a, another sister, I think, that w- didn't have those problems, right? Like, we didn't know any difference. It, it's a it's a tough question to answer and, and, and explain to somebody that how you could go through it. But I think it's something that everybody would have to go through differently and, you know, learn as they go. Question three is, we had a lot of fun growing up and we drove mom and dad kind of crazy. What is one of your favorite G-rated memories that you could share? Well, there's lots of R-rated memories, so I can't go into any of those. But I, I think one of my favorite ones is, you probably remember this, is when we ordered pizza to the house and we couldn't get the pizza to the house. So we ordered it to the neighbor's house across the street and hid in the bushes and waited for the pizza to show up. That was before Skip the Dishes and all that stuff. That didn't go over well, and but it was something we wanted to do. And I don't even think we were that young at that time. So, Before I ask this last question to you, I'm going to share a little bit of preemptive information about the two of us. I think it's only fair to the listener to help them understand. So you and I both know that in many ways, we're very similar people. However, in other ways, we're total polar opposites. For example, to describe Travis, he's like six feet tall, brown hair, and has an athletic build. Me, on the other hand, I'm five foot four, and that's rounding up. I have blonde hair, and I'm petite. 
Any type of sport that you suddenly decided you needed to play, somehow you excelled at it. And me, I have zero athletic skills. You always used to joke around when we were kids saying that if I was to lose my eyesight completely, that I was to not worry that you would train me for the Special Olympics instead because you thought that that would be pretty cool. I remember laughing hysterically and saying, "Mm, yeah, sight or no sight, I have no athletic skills at all. And those people are actual athletes and they would totally kick my butt. But today, in the sake of a hypothetical conversation, What sport do you think you would have the best chance in training me in to excel at and not look like a total fool? I've thought long and hard about what sport you could could play. And like you said, you have zero athletic ability. Like I thought about other sports like curling and those guys are and girls are complete athletes, right? So that is definitely not something that you could do. So I think that what our best option would be is if we could go to the Olympic Committee and talk to them and see if we could lobby and make fishing an Olympic sport because I think you could actually do that. You'd be trendsetting at the Olympics in blind fishing. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Blind Reality. I'd like to thank my brother Travis for coming and chatting with me today. And, as always, I'd like to thank my family for their continued love and support. This episode was written and produced by me, Becky Zarr. Technical production was provided by AMI-audio's Sam Robinson. And the manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Remember, if you need a hand, get it. If you can give a hand, give it. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media... Visit AMI.ca.